This month on Security Management Highlights. The Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act was tucked into the 2009 page must-pass budget bill. U.S. Congress managed to pass an important cybersecurity bill into law, but will it have any real impact on information sharing? Cybersecurity Editor Megan Gates gives us the scoop. When it comes to man-made biological events, such as an anthrax attack, the federal government isn't nearly as prepared to detect or respond. Homeland Security Editor Lily Choppa stops by to explain how the government is attempting to address the problem of bio-threats. Then... It's easier to attack a soft target if you think about the difference between a shooting at an outdoor cafe versus trying to attack a government building. The author of the 2015 ASIS International Book of the Year joins us for a discussion on soft targets. Plus, the formula that can help you build a better workplace culture. That's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. When it comes to cybersecurity in the United States, the importance of information sharing is rarely downplayed, but finding a clear path to help businesses do so is a different story. Well, Congress helped take that effort one step further in December 2015 when it passed the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, or CISA. Cybersecurity Editor Megan Gates joins us to talk about the law, its implications, and whether experts think it will have a real impact on the state of information sharing. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. So Congress had been trying to pass this bill for a while. What did it take for the legislation to finally go through? What it took was the threat of a federal government shutdown because whenever you need to pass something controversial, a great time to squeeze it in and get it through Congress, especially the 114th Congress, is to put it in a must-pass bill, which in this case was the omnibus spending bill that was passed by Congress in December to keep the federal government open. And so the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act was tucked into the 2009-page must-pass budget bill to keep the government open. And there were lots of people on both sides of the fence on this one. Privacy advocates were especially unhappy with the text of CISA and what they perceived as a lack of privacy protections. Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon was one of the most vocal critics of the bill. He said it had unacceptable surveillance provisions and was a black mark on the omnibus spending bill. He quote said, that means that violations of Americans' privacy will be more likely to go unnoticed. So there was a lot of back and forth when this was initially proposed in Congress. It looked like it was going to be stalled for a long time, but then with the omnibus spending bill, it was sort of the perfect storm to get it pushed through. So tell us more about what this law does and who it includes as far as the mandates that it calls for. So CISA creates, well, it's designed to create a information sharing platform between the federal government, local and state governments, and the private sector. And so what the law actually did when it was passed was it tasked the Director of National Intelligence, the Attorney General, and the Secretaries of Homeland Security and Defense with developing and issuing procedures to facilitate and promote, quote, the timely sharing of classified cyber threat indicators and defensive measures could be shared between the federal government, local and state governments, and private businesses. And when they say threat indicators, they mean a variety of information, but applies to almost any information that's necessary to describe or identify cyber activity used to gain unauthorized access or to harm a system. To prevent personally identifiable information being shared to address some privacy concerns, the law includes a provision that requires information that could be used to identify a specific individual be stripped from cyber threat indicators before it's shared. And also to encourage private businesses to participate in the voluntary program. The law clarifies that they will not be held liable or prosecuted for information that's shared through the system to combat cyber attacks. 
when CISA was passed, it gave, you know, the Director of National Intelligence, Attorney General, and the Secretaries a while to sort of create and issue guidance about how they were going to sort of create this information sharing program. And that guidance was released a few weeks ago and is just some general information about how cyber threat indicators, what they're looking for, defensive measures that they'll be able to take, and also addressing privacy, what kinds of information they do not want to be shared through the program and how companies and local and state authorities can strip information out that shouldn't be shared. You just talked about some ways in which companies can share cyber threat information, but what effect does this law really have on the whole concept of sharing information? We hear that a lot. Aren't there already networks in place to accomplish this task? Yeah, there are actually several organizations already in place that facilitate information sharing. One of the most prevalent are the ISACs, which have been in place since the 1990s and are pretty robust depending on their sector. One of the most popular ones is the Financial Services ISAC, which was sponsored by the U.S. Department of Treasury. There are 14 others in the nation for critical infrastructure, and they're designed to share information about physical and cyber threats, vulnerabilities, and events to protect U.S. critical infrastructure. Given the history of these ISACs, lots of people were somewhat skeptical about why CISA needed to be passed in the first place if this type of sharing was already going on. And so some people said, obviously, it was passed to sort of give companies liability protection for sharing these threat indicators with the federal government to sort of give them peace of mind that they weren't going to necessarily be sued or held liable for, you know, information that they passed on to the government. You wrote about some current roadblocks to information sharing. Will the law actually address those challenges? Yeah, it's not clear if it will address those challenges. It really depends on the program that's created by the government to share information. But some of the concerns that people raised with me when I was researching this article was, you know, we're already facing a worker shortage when it comes to IT professionals, cybersecurity professionals. So if this is going to create a system where there's going to be lots of manpower that's needed, who's going to do those jobs, you know, and how are they going to find that talent? to sort of facilitate that information sharing process. And then there were also concerns of if there's human interaction involved with sharing information, is that going to delay the process and make it so that the information that's shared really isn't usable to alert companies to what's going on and to help them improve their cybersecurity posture and prevent attacks from happening. Another problem that was raised to me by Chris Weisopel, he's the CTO and CISO of Veracode, was what if private companies don't want to participate? I mean, this program is entirely voluntary. They don't have to. And given the current dynamic between the federal government and especially the tech sector with the fallout from Apple versus FBI, it will be interesting to see, you know, how many people want to take part in another government information sharing program, especially if there's concerns about how that data is going to be used, who it's going to be shared with, and how much control private companies will have over their data. For instance, instead of using sort of the government's information sharing programs, Facebook has created a threat exchange platform. It's in its beta form right now, but it's being used by companies like Pinterest, Tumblr, Facebook, obviously, Yahoo, and Dropbox to share threat indicators back and forth within the tech community itself. So Chris Weisopel kind of explained, you know, if I was a tech firm, I would be probably more likely to share this kind of information, you know, with people who are in my industry that I know and that I trust, as opposed to maybe handing it over to the federal government. Yes, we'll be interested to see what comes of of that platform for sure. And finally, one of your sources says cybersecurity insurance might be a good idea for businesses. What's that all about? Is it like car insurance? I suppose it's like all insurance that people purchase and then hope that they never actually have to use. 
But no, I spoke with James Barnett. He's the head of Venable LLP's cybersecurity practice. Barnett said that purchasing cybersecurity insurance is especially critical because it has the effect of upping companies' game because the insurance company will put them through a regime that will make them more secure. They'll get the systems and services they need. And Barnett said he really thinks that's important for midsize and especially smaller companies. Well, thank you so much for explaining this law to us. Thanks for having me, Holly. Multiple reports call the United States biosurveillance and biodefense activities inefficient, fragmented, and poorly coordinated. And with deadly or harmful viruses like Zika spreading in other parts of the globe, the government is under the gun now more than ever to effectively combat these biothreats. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa is here to give us all the details. Lily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Holly. What exactly are the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention doing to prevent the spread of Zika and other deadly or harmful viruses? Is there some sort of coordinated response effort going on? While the Zika virus hasn't become a widespread issue here in the United States, it's certainly causing a crisis in Brazil and other affected Latin American countries. There have been at least 275 cases in the U.S., and the CDC is continually updating the public about the virus, since its potential side effects are very serious. Just recently, the CDC said men and women who have traveled to affected areas should wait eight weeks before trying to conceive, even if they show no symptoms of the disease. Right now, the CDC's role is researching the virus and preparing healthcare facilities to handle infected patients. No vaccine exists to prevent the disease, so education is the best form of prevention. But when it comes to man-made biological events, such as an anthrax attack, the federal government isn't nearly as prepared to detect or respond. You mentioned a couple of failed programs that are exemplary of this ineffectiveness of the government's response to these diseases. Can you expound? Sure. So, fortunately, there hasn't been a major biological event here since the 2001 anthrax attacks. But if there was one, experts say we wouldn't be much more prepared than we were 15 years ago. A number of agencies have been involved in addressing the threat of a biological attack, but some of their programs have been plagued with organizational and functional issues for years. The BioWatch program, which is an early warning network of sensors that is supposed to detect a biological attack, has technology that's considered unreliable. It's still being used around the country, but a Government Accountability Office report raises questions about its effectiveness. And the National Biosurveillance Integration Center is really limited in its information sharing abilities. These are both addressed by the GAO and a bipartisan panel who wrote a national blueprint for biodefense. The report examined the national state of defense against biological attacks in emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. The panel who wrote the report is made up of bipartisan lawmakers and biosurveillance experts, including former Senator Joe Lieberman and former Governor Tom Ridge. The report points to both naturally occurring threats, like the Zika virus, and biological weapons as grave threats to the country. Tell us more about the currently deployed BioWatch system you write about and the concerns that have been raised about it. Well, the currently deployed version of BioWatch, which is called Gen 2, has been around since 2005 and is supposed to detect the presence of airborne biothreat agents within 12 to 36 hours. But the technological capabilities have been questioned. Instead of addressing these concerns, the Department of Homeland Security focused on developing new technology, known as Gen 3, that would speed up detection time. However, Gen 3 efforts were ultimately abandoned due to testing and financial difficulties. And now here we are with this Gen 2 program still running, despite its questionable capabilities 
capabilities. A new GAO report details the shortcomings of Gen 2, including failing decade-old equipment, a lack of technical capability assessments, and no clear path towards the future of BioWatch. In the article, you mention a few GAO reports. What do they recommend overall? And is there anything you couldn't include in those recommendations that you'd like to tell us about? Both of the GAO reports emphasize the lack of central organizational leadership and direction when it comes to biosurveillance. And the National Blueprint for Biodefense that I mentioned earlier tackles this issue dead on. It recommends giving power to the vice president to reform the biodefense enterprise, prioritizing medical countermeasure development, and increasing industry participation. I thought it was pretty extreme to have the vice president be in charge of this, but the report says he or she can handle the bureaucratic hurdles involved. Here's an excerpt from the blueprint more about this. The nation needs an overarching leader who recognizes the severity of the biological threat and possesses the authority and political will to defend against it. This top-level leader, together with leaders throughout the enterprise, must guide efforts and ensure that the combined impact of biological threats, vulnerabilities, and consequences are managed using a common biodefense strategy. Thank you so much for joining us, Lily. See you next time. If you think your organization's culture has room for improvement, you might want to pay close attention to this next segment of the podcast. Studies consistently show a strong workplace culture is crucial to the success of any company. But how does one measure what makes a good culture and whether you've achieved it? Senior Editor Mark Tarallo explored that in this month's Managing Department. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Your story begins with an illustration of a workplace culture that researchers call exemplary, but it also involves trash talking. How can that be? Yeah, that's a good point. It kind of illustrates how culture is really unique to the organization and cultures can really reign. This example involves firefighters working at a firehouse. So the culture is going to be pretty unique and probably not replicable, not recommended for other organizations. But it shows how for this particular workplace, culture functions really well because the trash talking that you refer to. It's one of the two big attributes or qualities of the culture. The other is what psychologists call companionate love. And it's kind of a platonic bonding among coworkers, especially in high stress situations like firefighting. And so with those two factors, the companionate love and the trash talking or the teasing, whatever else goes into that, the humor, that type of thing. They balance each other out really well in that through things like teasing, joking, trash talking, people get to understand each other's weaknesses and strengths, each other's sensitivities, learn more about each other as a person and as a performer. That understanding gained through teasing, humor, trash talking, it really helps if you're in a stressful situation to understand what your co-worker's weakness and strength is. That's balanced out with what they call the companionate love. Since they are in stressful situations, the bonding that takes place really helps when somebody has a bad day, when somebody is in a really stressful, even traumatic situation. They can really help each other recover. Also very helpful and really makes the culture work well for that workplace. All that was found in a study called Is Love All You Need? And it was published about a year ago in the Academy of Management Journal. Now, while that study showed that that particular culture 
was pretty high functioning. There's been other studies. There's a big one out of the Katzenberg Center, which is something that Price Waterhouse Cooper, they run that. And they have a culture and change management survey. And that found that through a survey that a majority of respondents felt their culture needed to be improved, that it wasn't functioning well. So that really signifies that a lot of organizations, a lot of workplaces really have cultures that need help. So speaking of this widespread change that the studies say is needed, you write about an assessment model proposed by a management expert and columnist for Forbes.com. It's called a BRAVE assessment, B-R-A-V-E. Can you explain that for us and what each letter stands for? The BRAVE assessment stands for Behaviors, Relationships, Attitudes, Values, and Environment, B-R-A-V-E. And under that assessment, if say you were to do an assessment of your workplace's culture, you could either ask yourself and do the assessment yourself, or you could ask people in the form of a survey, a series of questions, all of which fall under one of those categories. They may involve behaviors, they may involve relationships, attitudes. Through the questions, you'll find out things like what behaviors are rewarded in this workplace, what behaviors are criticized or punished. Similarly, what attitudes are rewarded. It's through these questions, you're really learning a lot about the culture by finding out what's approved, what's promoted, what's accepted, what's not accepted, what's criticized. When people tell stories about the office, when they tell stories about former employees, who are the villains? Who are the good guys? Who are the quote unquote dragons who were slayed? Who are the heroes? And there's a lot of information embedded in those stories. And when you do an assessment like the Brave Assessment, you really think about the culture in a different way and patterns emerge as to what the values are, what the attitudes are, things like that. So, Mark, is there a one-size-fits-all approach for implementing cultural change once these assessments have been made? No, since culture is unique to each individual workplace, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. However, there's a principle that a management expert named Brady Wilson has come up with, which seems to have widespread application, and the principle is practice partnering, not parenting. So basically, if you've done an assessment on your workplace, is culture. You find that your culture needs work. It may need a revamp. It's not the right culture for what your organization wants to accomplish. There's some sort of disconnect there. To give a brief example, your culture, your workplace may be creating a product. So you want a very creative, collaborative environment, a collaborative culture, yet your culture may not be collaborative. It may reward individuals individuals who act on their own. So there's a disconnect there. So when you want to improve your culture, make it a better fit for what your organization's mission is, you want to do so in a way that you're co-creating a new culture with your staff. You're not imposing it on them from above. To give an example, it could be anything, but it could be like a talent management system. If your organization wants to develop a new one, they should ask staff, what do you want? you know, in terms of what would help you in terms of a talent management system. You find out what staff wants and then you kind of develop a system that incorporates that. So really staff is a co-creator in that new system. You don't just kind of impose something on top without finding out what staff wants in that regard. So Mark, what surprised you most when you were reporting out this story that you came across? 
You know, I would say what surprised me is when I was doing the research, there's so much research out there in terms of culture and factors in culture that's really pretty sophisticated and advanced. For example, there's research that finds that behaviors have ripple effects, even things like facial expressions and body language. So a manager or CEO who comes in to work looking angry, even if it's unintentionally, that may cultivate a culture of anger. And to the extent where there are so many cultures out there that are kind of dysfunctional, that one study found that a majority of respondents thought they're more comfortable expressing anger on the job than they are joy. So a lot of this stuff has been measured and the results are really interesting. Another one that I thought was very sophisticated and applicable was that in the area of neuroscience, what they call threat rigidity, which is someone who's under threat will really narrow their focus. You know, uh uh-oh, let's say your manager says, you know, you really screwed up. So the next day you're like, wow, I'm under pressure here. I narrow my focus. Brain scientists say that puts excessive stress on a part of your brain that can impair functions like judgment, memory, and impulse control. So there's brain science behind the negative effects that pressure, that feeling threatened can have. A lot of just in general, a lot of really sophisticated telling stuff out there that I think helpful for a lot of workplaces. Yes, I love how all of your managing stories end up having some kind of like psychological element to them. And that just shows the importance of a a well-rounded approach to improving any of these issues. So thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Thanks, Holly. Finally, the ASIS International Book of the Year Award for 2015 was presented to Jennifer Hesterman, retired U.S. Air Force colonel, for her title, Soft Target Hardening, Protecting People from Attack. She joined me to talk more about that book and how to harden these vulnerable venues. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. What are the challenges that come along with protecting soft targets, and why are they so attractive to terrorists? As we're seeing with the Paris attacks, and actually all the way back to the Mumbai attack in Paris and now Brussels, soft targets are definitely the number one choice for groups like ISIS. There's many reasons that groups choose soft targets. First of all, it's easier to attack a soft target if you think about the difference between a shooting at an outdoor cafe versus trying to attack a government building, for example. So it's easier. There's a shorter planning cycle, so it's quicker for them. If they want to carry out an attack, they don't need to plan for a couple of years. You know, you can find a soft target on any corner, so there are many soft targets. It increases the likelihood of success for the attack, and of course, for these groups, success equals credibility and recruiting morale-boosting for their members. Sometimes when we back these groups or cells into a corner, they will go to the operational stage quickly, as we found in Brussels. We were closing in on the cell, and they went to operational stage and pulled off the attack at the airport and then the train station. But it's believed that the original planned attack was actually quite large, much larger than that. But because we were closing in on them, then they did what they could, at least, to carry out a small attack. Also, they could delegitimize the government through soft target attacks because if people are fearful, and obviously fear is a byproduct of terrorism, people think the government can't protect them, then they sow those seeds of fear in the populace. And they get global media coverage. If you look at the coverage of the San Bernardino shooting versus the coverage of the Fort Hood shooting, the San Bernardino shootings received about four times as much uh, airplay in the press. And so that's free publicity for these groups. So if they hit a soft target, it's always in the press cycle much longer. 
So can a target be part soft, part hard? For example, airports have certain areas that are highly secured, but other areas that are completely open to the public. How do these venues present a unique challenge? Well, absolutely. Soft and hard targets can be co-located. A soft target can be inside a hard target, as you spoke of with the airports. When I was the vice wing commander at Andrews Air Force Base, I realized that this was a challenge for us because we're the home of Air Force One. We have the Air Force One facilities, a flight line. We have all sorts of buildings that we protect. But we also have 20,000 employees every day that come through the base. We have schools, churches, daycares, shopping, housing, golf courses, things like that. So the base itself, you would think that's a hard target, but we also had a lot of soft targets within the base that needed protecting as well. It became clear to me when I was in charge of the security for the installation that, let's just say, the bad guys were able to get through the front gate in a bomb, let's say it's a vehicle, with a bomb, they would never make it all the way into the assets that we were protecting on the flight line. But what would they do? They might take a soft target out. You know, they could easily potentially get to our schools, our shopping areas, our dormitories. So I had money for the base to protect the main primary assets, but I also had to cover the soft targets as well. We interviewed you for the April question and answer portion of the magazine, and you mentioned there that you wanted to apply some of the lessons you saw in the Middle East and Southwest Asia as far as soft target hardening in the United States. Can you expound on that? So we need to push security out like they do in the Middle East um, with the airports, where the security starts way out on the perimeter road, where you may be stopped. You may have to pop your hood and your trunk. They may even swab your palms to see if there's any bomb residue. They'll ask questions about where you're going. There's a lot of that way out before you even get to the airport. And then as you get closer to the airport, you have these concentric rings of security. And by the time you get into the airport, you've already probably been interviewed. Your luggage has been inspected. And these are deterrent for people. And, and as I say, the goal of soft target hardening is for the bad guys to take a look and size you up and decide it's too hard to try and just move on. I don't think we can stop these attacks from happening, but what we can do with our own facilities is at least make them look hardened where the bad guys will pass us by and not even try. But we need to think in our country more about these rings of security. And I see it with schools. A school can be really secure, but the parking lot's wide open. You know, and I tell them the parking lot's an extension of your building. And sometimes it's an easy fix, just a fence or some type of a night security, something like that, but they need to push away from the main building and put those rings out there to try to deter the bad guys. You also mentioned some of the soft targets currently being hardened in the United States. Could you touch on those for us? Absolutely. In the U.S., some sectors are starting to become more concerned that they might be a target for attack. Obviously, we've had al-Qaeda and ISIS both target the malls in the U.S. They've put out even videos on YouTube, and they've called out malls specifically. Malls America is always a target. Probably the name alone incites some of that, and Pentagon City Mall is another one. Just having the word Pentagon in the name of the mall is something that could be a trigger. And so the malls in the U.S. are definitely working towards becoming more secure. The FBI is out in different cities doing exercises at malls to make sure that they're ready for attack. Also, churches are open to a whole populace. They want everybody to come in, you know, and in the evening they might have events in the church where people are wandering around and also schools open their doors to other outside groups. Um, So it's really a multifaceted problem. I think there's an increase in crime, there's an increase in violence in our country. So I came up with a way to cross-apply what we do in the military, which is called effects-based operations, to the hardening world. And it's a system for these soft targets to visualize violent scenarios. Think about the worst-case 
scenario, but it's in an unemotional, data-driven way. So that way, when they have some money to put towards security, there's actually a system. There's a way for them to synchronize and prioritize their security activities instead of just putting up a camera or just putting up a fence. There's actually a system for them to work to secure their facility. Well, Jenny, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope that some of the information I gave today will just plant some seeds for ways that we can recognize our vulnerabilities and prepare for soft target attacks in the U.S. that I believe are a matter of when and not if. That does it for this month. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud so you don't miss an episode. And be on the lookout for bonus material throughout the month. Once again, I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.